You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, we want to continue to worship in God's Word. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, let's turn to Romans chapter 12 where we have been for a couple weeks here, at least in our study, Romans 12. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13. So on your way to Romans 12, I've got a picture from Owen. And I don't think Owen is with us today. He's he's showing a dog somewhere uh, this week at the fair. Owen got this with a hanger. Actually, I had three pictures turned in, and I think they most all of them or all of them involved hangers. So we got the idea of the hanger. What I didn't realize is one of the tools that a hanger can be used for that we talked about its use was to uh, put hot dogs in the fire. And you might have thought about that. That's the one I didn't mention. So you can't do that with a plastic hanger. That's going to be a bad hot dog. So, this is, so Owen's giving you another idea out of a thousand of them for hangers. But we talked about God and his gifts in the church and being used in this way and being moldable. And, and a hanger maybe doesn't feel so good to be turned and twisted, but God uses us in different ways as living sacrifices. And we're going to see a bit of that theme of living sacrifice continue through what we're going to read today. So appreciate Owen for drawing that out. Come to verse 9 in Romans chapter 12. Let me read. There's kind of a section 9 through 21, really. Maybe your Bible has that kind of set apart. I see some distinction between 9 through 13 and then 14 through 21 really almost gets into this, those that persecute or enemies We're going to look at that next week, but this week, 9 through 13, let's listen first to to God's word here. Paul says, God's word says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray once again. Lord, as we come to your word, we want to worship you. We want to thank you and praise you for this word before us. Your word to us here in 2023 to live for you. Lord, that that would be our goal. Uh, for to me to die uh, is fine, but to live, to live is Christ. And so we want to seek you. And I pray, Lord, through even reading this list and thinking on and studying this list, you would work in our hearts to be a type of living sacrifice for you that does bring you glory and honor for, for the vessels you have brought from death to life, transformed by your Spirit to give you glory. So guide our time by your Spirit, we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> question here as we get to this list and it is a list i didn't i don't i didn't count up how many things are in even 9 through 13 but it's it's just there's a list here and a question what is paul up to what's he up to in giving us this list how should we understand this list to to love and to honor others to be patient and so on and so forth maybe maybe paul's just laying out what might seem like just kind of another list of Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments for the Old Testament, here's a, new, here's a new list of things to do. But I think in one way, 
you won't be surprised to hear, I think the verbals here tell the story. And the verbals are participles. And you go, yes, participles. Again, we're back in the English class. Just bear with me just a bit. What's a participle? I won't put you kids in school on the spot or adults, but one definition of a participle is a verbal adjective, a verbal adjective. Okay, so think of participle, you know, it's a verbal, ad- verbal meaning kind of you think of action, the adjective being a description, so a, an, an action descriptor, or in other words, this list with all these participles, and that's all that's in here, is really a list to describe actions. In this case, what someone does. And I would suggest this list describes what living sacrifices do. It's descriptive of what a living sacrifice, that's verse 1, what this living sacrifice does. So Paul seems to be saying here, overall, be these kind of people. Let these descriptions describe who you are. But with all that said, on the participle, the very first phrase of this, it's actually a sentence in the ESV, the first sentence, there is no participle there. There's no verb at all. And it seems to, in some way, kind of set the category or the goal for the rest of what comes here, the rest of what follows. It's this first calling, let love be genuine. And I think you could say the rest of the list flows out of this. I think other commentators and others... I read, you know, try to sort out, how do you sort out this list? How do you make sense of it? This is my, I'm not, I'm not you know, stake in the sand. It's just categorically. But I think you see themes of genuine love start to flow through all of what comes. But first, let's look at this genuine love. A love that's to be, you could say, sincere. Another place says a love uh, describes this word uh, genuine as without play acting. Without play acting. This is a love without air quotes, if you will, like, oh yeah, I love him, which means you don't really love. It's not that. Or another way to think of it, don't act, again, like you love someone only to talk about them behind their back. Oh, I love them. And then, you know, or I love this person, and meanwhile, you're just, you're stewing in anger over this person. We need the Lord's help to love sincerely. And so this is a genuine love. It's a love without the buts in it. You know, I love him, but you should hear what he did. Or I love her and all, but I have to think of myself. It's just this, it's this love. And it's a call for authentic, sacrificial love, which is really the love our Savior shows us and how he has loved us. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows or God, you might have memorized it, God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That word, that when, when we say this is how God demonstrates or shows his love, that word has a definition. It says this, that kind of demonstration, to provide evidence of a personal characteristic or claim through action. That kind of showing of love is to provide this evidence or claim, I love you. It's That evidence is through the action. And so it's the same here. Genuine love is love in action for others. Being conformed to this world's idea of love, it says, I love you because you've earned that love today. You you are lovable to me. Or you've done this for me. I love you. 
That seems to be how we often, I think, think of love. Oh, I love you. We really love ourselves and what we're getting out of whatever, maybe the person we're saying, I love you. This is opposite of this. The call of our master is to abandon here fake love for others that looks like a world's kind of love and to love genuinely like Christ. And again, if you need a good place, what, what is love? Where do I find it? Am I being unloving? Just read 1 Corinthians 13. You will time and again get a handle on what it looks like to love. It's a great chapter. So, if genuine love, it kind of sets the tone, it sets the stage, then I want to go through the rest of, these, of this list here in kind of five sections, each dealing kind of with a different aspect of genuine love uh, through here. And so we start with verse 9, the rest of verse 9 here. So let me just read it. Let love be genuine, sincere, not play acting. And then abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And the ESV says to abhor what's evil. It means to have a vehement dislike for something. Hate strongly or abhor. You've got that in the English there. Why such strong language? I mean, we think, boy, are we supposed to abhor? We're supposed to really hate? I thought Christianity was one of love. Here it's abhor what is evil. Why is this? Why this language? It's because if we are children of God, we are to hate what God hates. Not what he doesn't, but what God hates, we are to hate. Listen to a couple Psalms. Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. This is a characteristic of God and evil. Listen to the call, Psalm 97, the call for those who love the Lord. There's a call to hate evil. You want to love the Lord? Hate evil. This is what it says. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. So this is not just Paul here in Romans, kind of a new idea. This is, this is ancient. Hate evil. It says he preserves, God does. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. So the call here is not to make friends with or befriend what is evil, but to hate what God also hates, and he hates evil. And there's a contrast here. Abhor what is evil, then the contrast by Paul, hold fast to what is good. In the book of Micah, chapter 3, verse 2, the leaders of Israel had flipped this around, and God condemns them. He says to them, you who hate the good and love the evil. It had been switched around. Or verse 9 in Micah 3 says, says, they make crooked all that is straight. It's this reversal. Loving the evil, hating the good. And it's the same today. Evil is celebrated. And good is now said to be intolerant. And here I wonder if Paul... His, his later call, verses 14 through 21, we didn't read them, but it's going to be, you know, bless... Bless those who persecute. Feed your very enemy. And it comes from the fact that, that when you follow Christ, we want to love what is good. And I think loving what is good, enemies are going to follow in that. And maybe that is part of what leads Paul to write this. Bless those who persecute. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And we'll look at that next time. One quick note here on the word hold fast. A definition for hold fast 
we sang today, he will hold me fast. One definition suggested this idea of being glued to, the idea of glue, like hold fast to what is good. And so the image is to not let go. Act like you're glued to what is good. And I think it, it might be somewhat easier, maybe in a way, to hate evil. That, maybe that's just easier, maybe, maybe wrongly in some ways in our sin nature. But maybe we think that's easy. The call is also cling to what is good. It's not just hate evil, cling to what is good. Doug Mui connects this then to genuine love. Listen to this connection. He says, love is, love is not genuine when it leads a person to do something evil or to avoid doing what is right. And that's helpful. Love just doesn't say evil's okay. Love says, I hate evil. I love what's good. He goes on. Let me just start over. Love is not genuine when it leads a person to do something evil or to avoid doing what is right as defined by God and His Word. That's important. Genuine love, Mu says, the real thing will lead the Christian to that good which is the result of the transformed heart and mind. So number one here, love what is good in this sense. What God says is good. Verse 9. Let love be genuine Love what is good. All right, we get to verse 10 then. We get to the city of brotherly love. And then the call here is to love one another. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And I call this the city of brotherly love because the Greek here for the words, if you've got brotherly affection in there, you've got the word, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. It's the Greek word. It's phila. Or Philo is love, Adelphia or Adelphos is brother. Hence the city's name, the city of brotherly love, that's Philadelphia. And Paul is calling the Romans here to be a people of this type of brotherly love. A love defined one way as a benevolent interest in or concern for or to feel affection for someone. This is loving dearly. It's not just a Sunday morning put-on love, kind of a fake love. This is, again, genuine. It's dear love. It's not just loving for a day and then going back to whatever. It's a dear love. So you are to, in a sense, you're to Philadelphia one another. It's the call here. To deeply and dearly be devoted to one another. Brotherly love. And then, also, honor one another. Or, in fact, Read it, outdo one another in showing honor. It's to reverence others. Kind of, we've got that idea in our parents to honor your father and mother, revere them, honor them. Honor means we, we value others and we're to lead the way in honoring others. And so we're to love one another. Just a brief stay in verse 10 there. Love one another would be number two. Then you get to verse 11. There's three calls here. I could say three calls to love the Lord. Put that in. If we were going to head it, um, love what is good, love one another. Verse 11, love the Lord. So it says here, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Let's look at these first two phrases. They're kind of, they're opposites. They form a contrast. And then I think the result is found in the third phrase here. The third one being serve the Lord. So 
We saw that we've seen zeal before, this first one. Don't be slothful in zeal. We already saw it last week. Verse 8 regards the one who is leading to do it with zeal. It's the same word. And zeal is how one should lead with, with haste, with exertion, with speed. And it ought not to be done in slothfulness. Others, Scripture described this word can be maybe translated by way of like, like an earnestness. So here it's the negative, don't be slothful. Positively, be earnest. Don't be slothful in zeal, but be earnest. Or make every effort. Or that is, don't do things. What you do, don't do it halfway. Do it all the way. Don't be lazy in zeal. But then the next phrase, be fervent in spirit. I don't know if any of your translations have spirit capitalized here. There's some question, is this our spirit or is this question be fervent in the Holy Spirit? Some different opinions on that. I don't think our spirit, again, in the Holy Spirit, they're necessarily disconnected. I'm not saying we are the Holy Spirit, but, we, but what did we learn? Back in Romans 8, it's the Spirit of God who dwells within And so he bears witness to our spirit that we're children of God. You can see that in chapter 8. And so God's Holy Spirit within does renew this inner man. And here I'd say the inner spirit. And so God's word calls us, don't be slothful, but be fervent. Be stirred up. Be enthusiastic. Be on fire in spirit. Don't be lazy with a goal. There's a purpose or goal, and that's the third phrase, serve the Lord. To serve the Lord is to be a slave. That's the kind of language. It's how Paul describes himself, and it's to be the call and the mark of everyone in Christ. That is, Jesus is, what is he called here? Serve the Lord. Jesus is the Master, so serve him. John Murray writes that serving the Lord, in fact, He says it defines the service in which sloth is to be shunned and fervor practiced. This reminder is the most effective antidote, this reminder of to serve the Lord. I've thought about it this way. This is a helpful quote. It says this reminder is the most effective antidote to weariness and incentive to, he calls it ardor. I think that's incentive to passion. When discouragement overtakes the Christian, and fainting of spirit as its sequel. Murray says, It is because the claims of the Lord's service have ceased to be uppermost in our thought. As he's connecting to the serve the Lord, it's, it's really considering who do I serve today? This very hour, this very day, when you wake up in the morning, who am I serving? We want to serve fellow men, our brothers and sisters. But in so doing, we are serving the Lord. We're servants. That's what Paul would say. I'm a servant of the Lord. We want to serve the Lord. So do it not slothfully. Do it earnestly. Be fervent. It's the Lord you're serving. But then verse 12, interestingly, so they're slothful, be fervent, serve the Lord. Verse 12 seems to take us from serving to suffering. These three Three phrases here seem to be tied in a way of suffering. Look at verse 12 then. It says, says, rejoice in hope, presently, or be rejoicing. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I see these 
almost, they're like three calls, three calls. I, I would just submit to love God in the valley. So we're talking about love. Let love be genuine here. Verse 12, love God in the valley. The first, rejoice in hope. It's, it's a theme we've seen. We see it in Romans chapter 5, chapter 8. There's this groaning now. Creation's groaning. But we can presently rejoice in hope for our adoption, our redemption of our bodies. We can hope for that in Christ. We can hope for the glory of God in all things. And so there's, both, there's this present hope. We can have hope today. That's why we can sing today. And then there's this future hope. And this future hope is secured by the promises of God. And this hope is secured by the, the sure blood of Jesus. And then by His resurrection from the dead. And then this implanting of this truth in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So we can presently be rejoicing in hope. There is reason to rejoice today. Now. Right now. And then connected. So rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And so Paul here, he doesn't downplay tribulation. He doesn't give us five ways to avoid it. Here's five steps and you can never have tribulation. You can get out of it. This seems to have the idea of being patient within it while you are there. And it, that's what Paul calls believers to. Be patient. Hold on. Endure. Remain. And I think as Milt was talking, we think about suffering and tribulation. What is your, what is my inkling to do when things are hard? Is Let's get out of this as quick as possible. How does this get better soon? That's where we want to get. We want to get out of it. The admonition here, be patient in it. Consider this. It's a calling and, and a command here from your Lord. So not every tribulation, not every trial, are we to seek to escape it or flee quickly. We want to trust God and His goodness while we wait. And so I think this last phrase, so there's rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. How? How does one rejoice? How does one be patient, be constant in prayer? It's like a trial three-pack here. You've got a three-pack for a trial. Rejoice. There is reason to hope because God is over everything. He is in control of everything. There's reason to be patient. You can wait. God's plans are sure. And then be constant in prayer. Again, John Murray, he writes this. He says, The measure of perseverance in the midst of tribulation is the measure of our diligence in prayer. Prayer is the means ordained of God for the supply of grace sufficient for every, and he calls it exigency. I've got to translate, urgent need. Prayer is the means ordained of God for the supply of grace sufficient for our every, our urgent need, and particularly against the faint-heartedness to which affliction tempts us. The reason I call this to love God in the valley comes through this Puritan prayer. Maybe you have, you've seen the Puritan prayer book, The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. It's, it's good. If you read through the prayers, they're, they're deep. They're not just surface prayers. These are they're really meaningful and not that you just should read prayers rotely, but as you think through them, they're wonderful. I want to read uh, really the first. It's called the Valley of Vision. How can we love God in the valley? Listen to this prayer in light of this rejoice and hope, patient tribulation, 
constant in prayer, might pray like this. It's just a portion of this, this valley of vision. It says, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. You hear this? This, this, this writer of this prayer is down in, in the valley, the dark valley. I live in the depths, but I see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. goes on to say, Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. I don't know if you've ever been deep in a well. I can't say that I have, but that's an interesting illustration. From the deepest wells, stars can be seen. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. So he prays, let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. It's a call. Love God in the valley. So rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. A valley of vision where we see the Lord so much brighter. The last two phrases we come to in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I think in some ways, in this theme of genuine love, these phrases point to, I think, loving the insider, the believers with the contributing, and then the outsiders, the showing hospitality. Loving these. Love the insider and the outsider. And the first call is for saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. These saints. Literally, you could say it's the the holy ones. And this is not St. Michael. This is not St. Peter. This is like St. Fred or St. Margaret or... Or St. Joe here. They're holy ones in Christ. And just to be clear, what, what does Paul mean by saints? He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. He's addressing a church. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place, what makes a saint? All those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and and ours. And so we are to contribute to the brothers and sisters, the saints among you in the church. And I think this idea of contributing here to the needs of the saints, it's more than here's $10. Hope that helps. See you later. I think the word for contributing has a little deeper meaning here. It's got this idea of participation to such a degree that the need of another becomes your own concern. That's contributing to the needs of others. It's like, this is as if your need is, it's like it's my need. It's like I, you begin to almost own the need. It's a practical way to Philadelphia, your fellow brother or sister in the Lord. And I understand not, we're not made to, I don't think we aren't, to meet every need in the body. It's, it's each of us in your particular sphere, the particular need that God shows you or where you live or your neighborhood of where other believers are or you happen to be in one conversation even this morning, you go, that was for me. I need to know there's a need here and it's the body working t- 
together for those. Not one to meet the needs. It's all of us in our particular places. Contribute, participate in the needs of the saints. And then lastly, pursue. Seek to show hospitality. And lo and behold, the Greek for hospitality begins with the word philo. Like Philadelphia, love, so philozenos, philo, so love, zenos, something unfamiliar or strange. Love the stranger, show hospitality. It's like this care and love for a stranger or somebody you're unfamiliar with. And we could even broaden it. Somebody you're familiar, practice this hospitality, practice this love. Hebrews 13 Verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Or angels unawares. I don't know if you've ever heard of Rosaria Butterfield, if you've heard that name before, or Rosaria, I think it's pronounced Rosaria Butterfield. I don't know all of her whole story. There's a book she's written about her story. One of her books we've got, I brought it up here with me, We've got in our library, it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And the, the byline here is practicing radically ordinary hospitality in our post-Christian world. I think you can look at this kind of like a manual on what hospitality, what's that? I think this might be a helpful book to read. Her own story, she was a tenured an English professor at Syracuse University, big into the feminists, I think maybe even written books on feminist theory, that sort of thing, a lesbian, all into the LGBTQ, all, all that, just into that world. And this Rosaria Butterfield was befriended by a Christian couple named Ken and then his wife, Floyd. Maybe you've heard the story, but this couple showed hospitality to her. Again, I don't know her full story, but let me just read portions of it and just listen to what hospitality looks like to someone unfamiliar. She writes this because she's, it, the, the scene is kind of her sitting outside Ken and Floyd's house getting ready to go in for dinner. They've invited her for dinner. She's waiting. She says, going to dinner at the home of Christians was not high on my list of longed-for activities. As an out lesbian feminist, a leader in LGBTQ rights, the recent co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, and soon-to-be tenured radical, my heart's desire was not to become friends with the enemy. Christians seemed like a small-minded, uncharitable, immoral bunch. They ate meat. Like that. believed in corporal punishment, violated human and environmental rights at a fevered pitch, denied a woman's right to choose, and believed that the whole world should fall under the totalitarian obedience to the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. I'm just reading parts. This is chapter 3 in this book. She says, Our worldviews and the moral lens we used to make sense of things were incommensurable, unbridgeable. But there I was in their driveway, parking my red Isuzu Amigo truck, decorated with my NARAL bumper sticker and lesbian decals. I sat there in my truck, readying myself to knock on the front door. She says, I sat in my truck in the driveway of this Christian home, musing about the book I was writing on the religious right and their policies 
practices and narratives of hatred against people like me. So she says, how in God's green earth did I get here, parked in the driveway of the enemy, you might ask? Here's the answer. The nice Christians who invited me to dinner intrigued me. The pastor, Ken Smith, wrote to me regarding an op-ed I had published in the Syracuse Post-Standard. In it, I opposed the Christian men's movement promise keepers for their backward and misogynist gender politics and their threat against democracy. I've always read all of my hate mail, hate mail, and I came to the conclusion that Ken's letter of opposition was the kindest one I had ever received. I also liked the fact that Ken had the right pedigree to help me with my research. So when Ken and his wife, Floyd, invited me to dinner, I said yes. My motives were clear. Surely this would be good for my research. I considered Ken Smith my potential unpaid research assistant. And then she says this, getting ready to go in. She says, I breathed hard and hoisted myself out of my truck, nursing a tender hamstring from my morning run. I waded through the unusually thick July humidity to the front door, and I knocked. She says the threshold to their life was like none other. The threshold to their life brought me to the foot of the cross. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confidence script. Nothing happened in the way I expected. Not that night, or the years after, or the hundreds of meals, or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from the church and university walked through the door of this house, as if no door was there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, and eventually came face to face with him. You don't have to know the whole story. It's just an amazing encouragement to think about the threshold of your door. Hospitality, not about getting everything clean and making sure nothing's burnt and all the food's just right. It is loving. She calls it radically ordinary, loving someone. And then what you gain from also, not just a project for someone, but also what do you gain from knowing this person as an individual? It's a great encouragement. I think, in this area of hospitality. And again, at different stages, not all of us can do this and that, but where has God placed you? What threshold, what place of hospitality to show love to strangers, to the outsider? So hospitality, love in general, showing honor, serving the Lord, praying, contributing. What do these things take? I think they take time, And they take effort, and they take, verse 1, being a living sacrifice. But each of the callings here that we're looking at in these verses, they bring glory to God. They're marks of living sacrificially for others more than self, living by, really, imitation of Christ who gave the ultimate sacrifice for His enemies. Two thoughts 
as we close. Two kind of more brief thoughts, somewhat brief, on what we've looked at here. Number one is a gospel guardrail. I want to just encourage you. Number one, be careful to look at these as another list of Ten Commandments. In, in this way, a way of these are do's and don'ts to be on God's good side. I encourage you, look at them as indicators. They're marks. They're, they're maybe goalposts. What do you want to shoot after? Of what? A transformed life in Christ. And to show you this, I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 1. I just want to look at it. Just, it's really brief. Romans 1, since you're already there, just look back. You can hold your thumb, 12. This came through just the daily Bible reading in our two-year plan here, came across Romans 1 and said, whoa, now that you've looked through this list, look at this list in light of the list we just looked at. Verse 28. And since, so this is of the, the wrath of gods against the ungodly, the unrighteous. Verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Remember, we're talking in Romans 12 about a renewed mind. This is a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the man or woman who stands condemned in sin. But for those, if you put your faith in Christ, Romans 3 says you've been justified. That is, declared righteous in the courtroom of God. And you no longer have this identity of Romans 1. There's an identity in Romans 1, no longer for those in Christ. So let the gospel be a guardrail for this, this list. And so we head back to chapter 12. Consider this, in light of the gospel, you've been transformed. You've been, as chapter 6 says in Romans, you've been brought from death to life. You are not under law, but you're under grace. And so let the gospel be a guardrail that we not look at these as, well, this is my way. I, I mean, I thought, the first 11 chapters seem to point to God's mercy and His grace and God demonstrates His love in Christ. You thought rightly, it's the gospel. These are fruits living out of the gospel. So be guarded by the gospel when you come to these things. We'll read later. For be, serve in the strength that God supplies. God is working these things in us. But number two, we've got a guardrail of the gospel. Number two, though, don't be slothful. Don't do that. Be, be carefully to not just even dismiss these and say, well, I mean, who can do this list? Nobody's perfect. That's sort of a, that attitude. Paul's question again, Romans 6, shall we sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so many have quoted this. I think Calvin, it's the, he's the one who wrote it down first. He said, it's, it's therefore faith alone which justifies our works do not justify us. But he says, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Faith alone justifies, but faith is not alone in the sense of James, chapter 2, verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, it's not salvation in two different ways. One, salvation by faith. 
boy, and then you get to 12, and it seems like a salvation by works here. No, it's the, it's the obedience of faith. It's the obedient faith that looks to Christ alone, once justified, and then this faith reveals itself in what? In good works, a new life, living as a sacrifice for your Lord by genuinely loving God and loving others. So by God's grace and the power of Spirit and then in the freedom of Christ, take hold of these callings today. Let love be genuine. Abhor what's evil. Hold fast to what's good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. Lord, perhaps some of these, we might rightly or wrongly feel like we're we're doing better than others. Lord, we come before you and would pray for your grace, a grace that motivates, a grace that through the Spirit transforms our very hearts and our very lives and then transforms our minds uh, to live out this list. Lord, today, this list, it's not hard to interpret. I think most of us would not struggle to understand what's meant here. What we struggle is to do what you've called us to and tasked us to, all while recognizing your Spirit has given us what we need to do these things and more. Lord, help us to be submissive to you, You are the Lord. You are our master. May we joyfully submit to what you call us to. And here you call us to sacrificial type living by loving you and loving others, loving you in the midst of suffering, loving others not like us, strangers, contributing, giving, sacrificing. Help us to be those type of people and in this so bring you glory for renewed lives that you've worked in us. And it's in your name. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.